Hello, everybody. This is Charlie. This is To Hell and Back. I listened to my podcast from last time, two weeks ago, and I got the name of the podcast wrong. I just realized right now. I, I said to, to Hell is Back, but it's a, To Hell and Back. And so I just want you to, I know, I didn't change it on purpose. It's just sort of the impact of the uh, current era. I mean, I do a lot of little things like that. Um, so Helen back, it's July 2nd, it's 6 p.m. in Massachusetts in the United States. And um, this is really part two of, uh, it's just so convenient to say it's part two. It's just another podcast, but it's part two of the, of the idea of trying of, of mindfulness amidst mindlessness, which is really, um, I laid out in the first part, and I want to just do a very brief summary of that. You know, when I do a brief summary of a previous podcast, it's interesting. I always find out that the previous podcast, which lasts a total of an hour, could have been done in five minutes. And then I think, oh, my God, how did I make it last a whole hour? And then I go back and listen and think, oh, that's how. Because I told stories and I, I wound around and stuff. But there's really just certain main ideas. And then today I want to take it further because what I intended to do was to bring large um, DBT-based uh, principles and strategies to bear on what, um, I, I can't speak for all of us, but what uh, many people are going through during this era. Uh, and so what I, uh, and, and so, and I have a certain, um, you might even say a protocol for how I hook together these things. And I realized it as I got ready for this podcast. You know, getting ready for the podcast was itself an example of what the trouble is these days. I, I left myself, as I often do when I'm going to do a podcast, several hours during the day after thinking earlier in the week a little bit. And then I try to really just give myself a chance to think deeply about something and take some notes. And sometimes I even type it up and I get organized about it. And so today I had um, the last four hours during which our dishwasher broke. Uh, a tent that we put in the backyard so that we don't have insects invading us when we get around our table fell down. Um, my son was supposed to be doing several chores at the house and he was nowhere to be seen. And I was tracking him down and then trying to get him to do things. My wife was doing therapy all day on Zoom and it just wore her out. And so it's sort of like when um, she just had very little space after that. Um, Gosh, and what else? And, and I went swimming just for my own sanity, which is one of my own solutions to this is that there's a lake about um, 15 minutes away uh, and a friend's house who on a lake. So I just went there. So I've had actually lots of time and very little time to really get this formalized. So that either means this would be better than usual or worse than usual. I don't know which. Um, but I know, what, I, know, I know more or less what I want to talk about. So let me first summarize the last time, the, the 60 minute into five minutes. Um, what I talked about last time was say that, you know, I think uh, everyone I know, let me just put it that way, is struggling, uh, has sources of vulnerability these days, uh, has sources of stress um, that starts with the, all of the restrictions, the cautions, the anxiety, the fears, the uh, catastrophic predictions, uh, the crazy behavior of leadership of our country anyway, 
toward this pandemic. So all of that, forget everything else I talked about, that in itself encapsulates a set of vulnerability factors that make life harder. And everyone I treat on Zoom in my therapy practice, in my supervisions, people who I have as friends that I talk to about these things, uh, and in my own family, it's just hard. Um, everybody's tired of it. Everybody's ready to go out. And of course, if I was in Florida or Texas or Arizona or California, maybe I would be flocking to a beach or some crazy thing like that during these days, which is like, as, as now proven to be a disastrous thing to do. Um, so it's really stressful. It's, uh, it's an entrapping. Um, and so we're all coping with that. And I, what I called last time, what I said was, let's call that one wave of vulnerability factors washing over us every day. Gosh, I woke up this morning and I just, I, well, opened my eyes, I thought, shit, here it is again. We're doing the same thing. It's only Thursday. I think it should be Sunday already, and, and we should be having a better time. And it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be moving from my bed to this table, to the kitchen, to this table, to the kitchen, to this table, to bumping into my wife in between sessions and trying to know what's going on with my kids. And then it's time for bed. It's like, is that a life? Um, and so I find that very hard. Some people find it. I was treating somebody today in therapy um, whose wife is a therapist. And I learned that she works all day way more than I do. I mean, she's just the kind of person who does therapy all day and into the evenings. And I've always had other things I do. And, uh, and I learned that she loves it. She, it gives her energy. She enjoys it. And then you just don't want to hear about that. You know, you don't want to hear about the horrible stories and you don't want to hear about the good stories. I, there's just nothing you want to hear about during this time. You just barely have enough room for your own thoughts. And then people start talking and, and you realize, I don't want to hear about everybody else's misery and what should they do. And yet that's what I'm doing on the podcast. But that's a more formalized way of doing it. Um, so it's very hard, this whole thing, in spite of the fact that it's only one thing. It's one wave. So, the, so one application today will be, how do we go from mindfulness to radical acceptance, to validation of ourselves, to problem solving, again and again and again? How do, what, what in, if, if you think of those things in depth, and if you have a good understanding of each of those large things to do within DBT and beyond DBT, you know, how would it work? So I'll come back to that with the, about the pandemic and all the restrictions and, and the uh, trouble. But then what I also summarized last time was you can't stop there. And it's different for every person. But for some people who, are, who have it in their faces, the level of inequality that has evolved in the last 35 to 40 years in America is devastating. It's devastating for the have-nots who have who have, whether they realize it or not, watch the gap between them and the haves go bigger and bigger and bigger every decade, every half decade, until it's actually almost obscene at this point. I mean, it is, I mean, from my point of view, it's obscene um, to see the, the gaps. Uh, you see it and you, you, you don't have to look very, if you live in, a, in one place, of course, you don't see it. It's when you travel a little bit or you read 
or you watch things or you listen to people and you realize, oh my God, here's a high school basketball team in Los Angeles that doesn't have shoes and that barely has food on their table at home. And they, and they live within blocks of the Coliseum where the Los Angeles Lakers play basketball for 10 or $20 million per person. And where the company is run by a billionaire. And it's just one example of hundreds, thousands maybe, but it's really disturbing. So if you've got inequality in your awareness, in your face, and you just see what's happening, and if you're trying to fight for mental health care for people or health care in general for people, and then you see the combination of that with the leadership of the country that's trying to get rid of the very um, health plan that ensures people for health care, people who have nothing else. It's like unbelievable. So inequality is itself a wave, another wave that crosses over. You might sort of picture these various waves like rippling across each other. Inequality is just this huge wave that's been going on much longer than the pandemic but it creates the infrastructure in which the pandemic exposes it even more. Then you have racism, which has really gotten more exposed more during this time. And it isn't new. It's been going in America for about 400 years and it's still going. And it's just unbelievably disturbing to just see it for what it is. And of course, I'm not in that situation. So I can't speak as the person who's been the victim of racism, except that in a way, all of us participate in it in our culture. All of us participate in it one way or another. And so we're all part of it. And so to recognize that is disturbing. And sometimes it's not clear what you can do about that or what you should do about that. And you can, if you start to problem solve, which is the fourth step of the four step protocol I was talking about, you start to really break down what action steps can I take in res with respect to inequality, with respect to racism, with respect to the pandemic. Um, so those are three waves. And those waves, forget the pandemic, but those two last two waves began when America began as a really interesting and complicated country that claimed that the values are equality for all freedom and liberty and equality for all and was that's been you know our, our our one of you know our mottos and so to see the motto alongside the reality is very disturbing and then another wave um is the level of polarization in our dialogues and it and all of these are interdependent. It isn't like each one's totally separate from a different way. But the level of polarization, which if you live in the United States and you just turn on one television channel and then go to another television channel of the two opposite ends, both of which are, are filled with very articulate speakers who are trying to get audiences, and you hear and you just think, here's two totally different realities, really different, like different facts, not just different interpretations of facts different perceptions and different facts, different realities, and then people go very different places. So the level of polarization, which has gone on for a very long time, um, and it gets uh, bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller over the, over the United States history, but in the last 10 to 20 to 30 years, and especially with the addition of uh, cable news networks, 
and social media platforms has just gotten crazy and makes it hard to solve the other problems. And in fact, it sort of lines up with the other problems because what do we polarize about? We polarize about inequality. We polarize about poverty. We polarize about racism. I mean, so these very things that we need to solve that are like unbelievably hard to solve for any country. I mean, we're, we're operating from a platform of such severe polarization that it's really hard to come to a synthesis, come to a middle path. And, and, and people who go to the middle path get blamed for going to the middle. People who go to the middle path get blamed because they're, 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 they're weak. It's a little bit like Thich Nhat Hanh found himself during the Vietnam War coming to the United States to advocate for peace. And he was advocating for peace in Vietnam. And then he was advocating for peace in the United States. And it turned out that even though Martin Luther King wanted him put up for a, a, a Nobel Prize, he was uh, victimized, he was damned by the West for not being against North Vietnam. And he was damned in Vietnam for being pro-American. And he was pro-peace, but pro, there was no place for pro-peace at that moment. And we're a, bit, a little bit like that. There's no place now for just complex, realistic thinking, saying, hey, yeah, maybe these guys have some good ideas. Maybe these guys have some good ideas. Actually, Let's listen to each other. It's just, as we all know, I, I feel like I'm repeating something that probably everybody thinks every day. So I apologize and I suggest that you just leave and go get a drink or something like that, you know, to help you get do it. I actually have a glass of wine right here just to get myself through this. Then there's Trumpism. So another wave, which started just a few years ago, it actually started quite a few years ago if you were in the New York area, because this has been an obnoxious character for a long time. Um, and, a, and a celebrity, he made himself into a celebrity. But it really, lately, week by week, with increasing severity, and with support from people who should know better, we see an in increase in uh, just kind of a um, reckless disregard for human values. It's a reckless disregard for empathy, for compassion, for people who are having trouble. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I, w I did a podcast a few months ago about this topic, and I was in a different place at that time. I really tried to sort of have a balanced view of, because I know people who are really on the Trump side of Trumpism, and, and certainly people who are against Trump. And I thought, okay, let's look for the wisdom on both sides, because there's a dialectic here. There must be a dialectic. There's always a dialectic. There's always two sides to the coin, right, or more. So I looked for that. But actually, by now, as I've accumulated impressions and observations and, and facts about the number of things he has said and the number of things he has done, um, the number of lies that he's told, and the number of decisions he's made that look unbelievable, because the people who are the recipient of the decisions are just the recipient of something that looks so callous that you just think, how did that happen? How did the president say that? I mean, wait someday until somebody puts all of his tweets in a book. I mean, in other eras, hopefully, are going to look at this and say, oh, my God, how did you guys get through three and a half years? Because it's so bad. 
I mean, so I, 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 so I sound pretty judgmental now, but I actually now, I, I, maybe there's an, there, I've eclipsed the difference between my judgments and the facts. I actually think my judgments are the facts. But of course, that makes me no better than anyone else who thinks the judgments are the facts. I mean, but I just, I have to go with what my brain actually figures out and tells me I'm usually pretty balanced. And I just have a hard time seeing the other side. So that's another wave, what is the decisions that have been made. And those of you in the United States that hear this all know this, whichever side of the fence you're on, is that the president has been making decisions that are so different than what scientists recommend and so different than what facts seem to bear out uh, that you just feel like, wow, how, do, how does he defend himself in his own mind? And then you have to think after you've seen him for three and a half years, he doesn't have to defend himself in his own mind. His self-interest is supreme and it eclipses other types of interest. So I think that that's another thing is dealing with decisions being made by our leaders that have exacerbated the pandemic, that have widened inequality, that have worsened racism, even right up to today with things that he announces and makes, and that have, as a result of especially the pandemic and how it's been managed, uh, ruining the economy even more than it already would have to be. Because as, as smart and scientifically oriented people at the beginning of this, like Anthony Fauci, like other people who are scientists, like Bill Gates, who has studied pandemics for decades, all said, well, the solution to the economy is to get rid of this virus. That is the solution. It isn't like these things are like, um, well, you, you have to let one go for the other one. I mean, yes, you have to tighten your belt. Yes, you have to suffer through, but you can't go forward unless you get this virus to die out. And you can't get the virus to die out if you keep doing what we've been doing. And you can't stop doing what we've been doing when you have so many people that listen to the president and he says the kind of things he says and his other supporters say those things. So this is what I talked about last week. So I have to admit, it wasn't five minutes. It was 15 minutes. All right, last time it was 60 minutes. So you can give me a lot of credit for just narrowing it down a little bit, you know, to one quarter, okay? Now, what about today? What else do I have to say? Isn't that enough? I mean, doesn't that just make you want to just go get totally drunk and just forget about everything? I mean, or, or have some really good strawberry shortcake or something that's really has, tastes good. Of course, that's one of the solutions now. Those are two of the solutions now that a lot of people are using. So here's what I want to talk about. When you are trying to address things that make you miserable, things that make you suffer, whether it's wave number one, two, three, four, five, or some other wave. I haven't even talked about the devastating decisions being made about climate change, which could be added to this, um, or other things, sexism that's inherent in our president. So there's so many things, but whatever it is, I've come to find for myself, and this is a very practical solution for me, it's not theoretical, this is what I do. I start out with thinking, I need to start out with mindfulness. And what do I mean by that? And, and by the way, I'll just forecast it like this way. You know how there's, I was thinking today that with um, engines, what a four-stroke engine is, there's four-stroke engine. Well, this is a four-stroke solution to misery. So the first stroke with an engine, of course, is I think intake. 
of an air-fuel combination. Then the second one is compression, is a second stroke while the piston's going around. And the third one is the uh, power that's generated by the explosion when there's a spark plug in that compressed mixture. And the fourth is exhaust, and then you start over again. So I'm telling you, mindfulness is the first stroke. Radical acceptance is the second stroke, and it's pretty close to, it's related to the first stroke, but it is different. Validation is the third stroke, and it's, it's related both to mindfulness and to radical acceptance, but it's different. And then the last stroke is the only stroke of the four strokes that is the change-oriented stroke, which is problem-solving, which is how do you solve a problem? But you're much more effective. I'm more, I'm more effective at solving it. I'm more efficient. I'm more targeted. I'm more clear, and I'm more effective at solving a problem that's causing me misery if I go through the first three steps first. Um, and then, or, or go back through them. Because they're all, and all of these four steps are interdependent. When you use mindfulness, you almost automatically move towards radical acceptance. When you use radical acceptance, it almost automatically reinforces mindfulness. And when you use validation of yourself and your misery and whatever's causing it and whatever's going on in your thinking, um, you are already borrowing from and, in, and contributing to radical acceptance and mindfulness. Uh, so they all go hand in hand. But I, I tease them out of this mix of three acceptance-oriented concepts in DBT. So what do I mean by mindfulness? This sounds like a math class because I just said there's five of these and now there's four of these and now I'm going to say there's two of these. What are there two of? There's two things that go on fundamentally in mindfulness that mindfulness instructors teach that that inter that are themselves interdependent, but they are. It's worth thinking differently about that. That they are different steps. One step is concentration. So one type of mindfulness is actually when you observe, or when you describe, or when you participate in a certain type of experience. When you sit and observe the breath, when you observe what's going on in your sensations in your body, when you observe what's going on in the sounds around you when you observe what's going on in your thoughts or what somebody else is saying, when you use relationship type of mindfulness and you actually pay real close attention to another person, these are all just concentration. And the idea is with concentration practices, which is what most of the practices are that we talk about in DBT. The concentration practices are, um, um, they help you generate what Thich Nhat Hanh calls the energy of mindfulness. Uh, I always liked that concept because I, when I first heard about mindfulness and was learning it and practicing it, the idea that there's an energy of mindfulness, it was just a little bit of a leap for me. It no longer seems like it is. It's sort of like what happens if you, even if you do little itty bitty mindfulnesses, which in the previous one previous podcast I called Pac-Man mindfulness, you know, where you just do little things and little during the day that anchor you to the present moment again and again and again. And it builds your, these things, if you do them frequently enough, they last. And they build what you might call energy of mindfulness. So concentration practices, which is what most of the mindfulness practices are in DBT, are just valuable in generating mindful energy. And what does that do? It anchors you to, the, to, to your body. It anchors you to the here and now. 
it anchors you to the space that you're in or the time that you're in, the person that you're with, the activity that you're doing. All of these things have this common denominator of anchoring you, grounding you in this. So some mindfulness teachers will say, settle into your body, settle into your breath, settle into the present moment, settle into the sounds around you, settle into nature. And all of these things have this same concept of settling in, which I sort of mean getting grounded, getting based. And, and you, how do you do those things? It's very simple. You just keep paying attention to something and let your mind stay with it rather than go away. Mindfulness teacher Pema Chodron does some beautiful teaching where she just says, you have to say to your mind, like you say to a dog, stay, just stay. And so when your mind, and then your mind is going to get up and go away again. And then it's like, no, just stay, just stay. You do it kindly, but it's firm. Like you realize your mind is always trying to get away from whatever you're exposing it to, even if it's the breath. And so you, you just try to do that. And in doing that again and again, whether you do that, and I don't think you have to do that by sitting for an hour or walking for an hour or eating mindfully for an hour. I think that all these things are, are sort of elaborated practices on fundamental applications of mindfulness, which actually we do if we just sort of stop halfway up the stairs and just look around us and realize where we are and realize how we feel and realize how our body feels and realize where we're going and then continue. And then do it again when you're getting in your car and then do it again when you go for a walk and all of these things. So the idea, the first whole chapter of mindfulness practices, I would group as concentration practices that have the purpose of generating mindfulness energy and grounding us. And this is so valuable in itself and so rare, <laughs> so rare. I mean, it's, so it seems crazy that it's rare, but it, I think it's rare for most of it. It certainly has been rare in my life uh, before I was exposed more and more to mindfulness. So it's like, okay, that's one thing. Well, what's the other chapter then, if that's part of mindfulness? The other chapter is then if you generate mindful energy, you might say you now have something to spend. You now can direct your mindful energy towards something, towards a challenge in your life, towards a friendship that is going badly for you. And you, and you haven't really given it much thought because mainly you're just upset about it, or you're just judgmental about it, or you're judgmental towards yourself about it. Or you're just wondering, how could this have happened to me? What happened to this friendship? And so what you do is generate mindful energy, for which you don't need to be thinking about the friend at all. You can be thinking about anything that you focus mindfulness attention to, and then you generate this state. You're trying to generate a state. So the first state, which is a mistake I used to make in early mindfulness practice, when I would think I want to work, let's say, on, on my relationship with one of, one of my children and my reactions to something one of my children does and I'm all upset about it and I think oh when I when I sit and do mindfulness this morning I should just think about my child but actually that was that didn't work as well as what I'm talking about instead sit and notice the breath sit and notice sound sit and listen to music sit and look at pictures whatever it is that settles my mind in the present moment and then once I'm more settled, then bring my child into my mind. Make your mind into a nice place to be, if possible, and then you are the host of whatever you invite into your mind.
You might invite the past in and re-examine your past. You might invite the future in and think about in this pandemic, where do I go on vacation? Everything seems like it's impossible to have a vacation. And so if you're thinking about your, your, your friend or your child or something, you do that. So what is this second chapter? It's what meditators will call insight. So the first chapter is concentration. And it could be done with anything because what matters there is not what you focus on as much as the quality of attention that you pay to what you focus on. Just want to say that again for people who are not really familiar that much with mindfulness, because I think these are practical strategies. It doesn't matter as much like, oh, I should focus on this, or I should focus on it for this long, or I should focus while I'm sitting in a lotus position, because that's what the Buddha did, or something that, no, it's, it has mostly what to do with the quality of your attention. And if you can focus on something with quality attention for a while, and stay with it and keep coming back to it, even though it isn't fun. And that's not the point of it anyway. It's to establish a home for yourself in yourself, which, which includes the non-fun stuff of life as well as the fun stuff of life. And so you get that going and then you say, let me think about X. And now what happens is you're more likely to see reality or closer to it for what it is. And so when I say insight, I'm not talking about psychoanalysis and I'm not talking about interpretations. I'm talking about seeing reality as it is. Just seeing that, yes, this is what is happening because that sets you up for step two, which is gonna be radical acceptance. So I, there's, there's more to say about mindfulness, but I just wanna say those to me are the fundamental things that I, I mean is to try to generate that energy and then marshal that energy and bring it to whatever it is. I find sometimes, that's a trivial example, I'll sit for a little, like five minutes and do mindfulness in my office or in some room. And then, I, and then I'll look around me after I'm sort of been practicing mindfulness and I'll say, oh my God, what a mess it is in here. It's like, I wasn't thinking that before. Why wasn't I thinking that before? Because my mind is so busy with so many things, I don't even see what's around me. So I don't even see, you know, this, this needs to be cleaned up. And then I'll straighten things up or I'll clean things up. It's sort of like automatic insight into reality. Once you calm your mind or once you settle your mind into certain quality of attention, then you look around and you might say, look at a relationship and say, oh my God, no wonder this person's upset with me the way I've been behaving. You know, I was really frustrated with one of my children today and talking about, you know, things he's doing that I think are, not great things for his future. And um, I won't say which son it is because, <laughs> you know, I. And, um, so, and then there was a certain point in our, I tried to get more skillful with him. I tried to actually sit back on our, in our backyard and just, just sort of let, let go of him, let go of my concerns. And I practiced mindfulness of a couple of things. And then I just brought my attention to him and I thought, God, no wonder he's upset with me. No wonder he's like not wanting to tell me certain things. He feels that I'm trying to control him. I know that. I'm the same way as that. I don't like people telling me what to do. And so of course he's upset. So then I start to say something to him. And it's so interesting how these things are go sometimes in parallel because I, I brought it up to him. I said, you know, I want to talk to you about what I was saying before. And he said, Dad, I know you're upset with me and I understand why. 
but I just, I don't think you understand what I'm trying to do here. I'm not trying to do X. And you think I'm trying to do X and I'm just not doing it very well, but actually I don't even want to do X. I said, oh, right. And I saw, real, I saw a better layer of reality than I saw before, but he already was doing it himself. As soon as I changed my tone, he got different, which I think is how these things spread. So anyway, there's, there is the concentration practice. And so if you're in the middle of the pandemic and you're having the trouble I'm having or other people are having, where every day is just a little harder than it used to be, and you're vulnerable, and there's not many boundaries between your work life and your personal life and your home life and your dog life and your spouse life and everything. It's like all mushing together, and you can't go anywhere, you know, without jeopardizing something. It's really terrible. I mean, it's really difficult. I mean, in fact, it isn't really terrible, but it feels really terrible at that point. And then it helps to just do mindfulness get yourself settled, generate some mindful energy, and then bring your attention to what am I suffering from the most? Which aspect of this, you know? My wife said to me earlier today, we need to go out somewhere. You know, we just need to go out somewhere. We need to have a picnic somewhere. Can we go just this weekend and get, and get like this and this and this and just go somewhere? Can you plan it? I said, absolutely, I need, I need the same thing. You know, she said, why don't we go to such and such a place? And all of a sudden, we're problem solving. But we had already, we were so, by this point, so mindful of what the stressors are. We've, we, we share that with each other, and we have ways to try to get through each day. But then we start thinking, yeah, well, you need variety in your life. I mean, I went away last week. It's when I would have been doing the podcast. I couldn't do the podcast because I was off doing variety in my life. I went camping with my two sons and we went camping into New Hampshire and we, I, I hiked a, a trail that I didn't think I could possibly do at this age and not having practiced very much hiking. And, and we were with each other. We had campsites and stuff. And then I came back and I thought, wow, that was great to get away. And I put myself in jeopardy because of the ways we were interacting with each other a little bit. And I was trying to be careful. But if you actually go in the real world, it's hard to be careful enough. And you don't know how careful to be. So that's all going on. Um, and you need to problem solve. Now, I'm talking mostly about being mindful of our own misery and mindful of the sources of our misery, which is different for each person. And for somebody, it could be that the mindfulness of the source of your misery might include issues of inequality, racism, uh, police activity, uh, the dialogues going on in our country, economic uh, trouble, uh, having uh, crazy things come down from the leadership of our country on an almost daily basis, uh, the, all these things. So it's different for different people, but I'm trying to state a sort of four-step formula that would apply potentially to any of these things to where you might start to see the reality of what racism is, the reality of what inequality is, and those would require work to do those things, but it would require mindfulness and then turning your attention to the reality. And that's the insight aspect. You say, oh my God, yes, if I was a black American and I don't, ha and I don't have my current situation, but I have two black sons and I have to worry not only about what you worry about with your kids anyway, 
as, as a sort of privileged white person, but I also have to worry whether they'll make it on the street without getting picked up by a policeman or brutalized or being treated with prejudice every day. And then you really let yourself even begin to get into that. And then you pay attention to people who can tell you about that, who are real experts in that from the inside. And then you read James Baldwin and other people who've written so incredibly about it. And you just say, oh my God. And it's, and it's, so that might be the thing that you more look at realistically, trying to see the reality. Because we don't like to see realities if we don't have to. We have so much going on already. Second step's radical acceptance. So let me say this. I'll give you a second metaphor. Um, forget the four-stroke four engine. Now talk about a baseball diamond. All right, home plate is mindfulness. First base is radical acceptance. Now on the way from mindfulness to radical acceptance, what do you encounter? Well, mindfulness helps you sort out what is it that's reality? What's really going on as best as you can tell with your own senses and your own thoughts and your own you know, investigation? What's that versus what do you wish was going on? What do you think should be going on? What's your illusion about what's going on? And then you realize, oh, what I wish was going on. Like, let's take it, let's say you lose somebody very important to you. What's going on is that they're gone. In a corporeal sense, they're gone. In other senses, maybe they're not, but they're, but they're dead, all right? What's going on on the other side of your brain is, God, maybe they're still alive. Maybe they'll show up tomorrow. Maybe they didn't really die. Maybe that's a figment of my imagination. You get in the middle of the night and you think, oh, they're awake. They're, they're down in the kitchen. I'm going to go down there. And you go and you're like, oh, my God, no. The reality is they're gone. And so the difference between the reality and what you wish was the reality is, is the, it's what's on, on the way to first base. It's when you wake, you, if you use mindfulness, presumably, hopefully, to some degree or other, you wake up to reality. And when you wake up to reality, it's, that doesn't mean you've accepted it. So it means that you've woken up to it. Now you have the opportunity to maybe be able to accept it. But it depends, you know, all the stages of accepting death, accepting this, dealing with PTSD, I mean, there's all of these things that we do before we can actually get to real radical deep acceptance and embrace reality as it is and say, you know what, this is reality. This pandemic, this virus, the way it transmits is actually just the way it transmits. And people, have known, people who know viruses have known this for a long time. So actually, there's nothing new here under the sun, especially, except the circumstances. But the reality is this. And, but I've been thinking, no, maybe this one, as our president said, this one might just miraculously go away, right? Be the first virus in history that miraculously went away. I mean, so, but maybe it will because Trump said it. So maybe it will. And the, and the 40 million people who follow him as if it's the, the Bible are thinking, yeah, it's going to go away. And then somebody says, I think in Florida here, we don't need to shut down. We don't need to lock down. And we're going to go forward now with this. And so go ahead, go to bars, go to restaurants, and 
forget those people that show up on television like Anthony Fauci and the other public health experts. Like they're just downers. They're just Democrats trying to ruin the president's party. Um, so then you're sort of stuck between these two different voices inside your own head, which is like for me even, maybe it's okay that I go camping with my sons and go to camp, a campground and run into people on the trail. Maybe it's not, I don't know, but it's sort of like, what's the reality there is not so easy to figure out. I'm not trying to overdraw how easy this is. But, but basically we often are in a position of, this person's dead and I don't want them to be dead. I didn't get that job and I desperately wanted that job. I, 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 I feel okay about myself until that person said that very critical comment to me. And uh, I can't believe they said that. Did I really hear that right? Yes, you heard it right. You don't know what it means for sure, but the reality is somebody said a critical comment. The reality is somebody's dead. The reality is you didn't get the job you wanted. The reality is you didn't get the man or woman that you thought you were longing for. And the reality is that your life is not quite what you wanted it to be. And the reality is that there's this pandemic then we, and the reality is that there's complete uncertainty about how long it's gonna go on and how many sacrifices it's gonna require. We just don't know. So all of that is like reality, I think. And if you take it in, when you're being mindful and you calm down a little bit and you let yourself notice your emotions and you let yourself notice your fears and you try to get closer, you edge up to reality, then you get closer to first base. And now you're thinking, yeah, I do see this for what it is. And what am I gonna do about it? And so what I'm saying that what DBT has within it is that the next step, from my point of view, the next step, would be radical acceptance. And radical acceptance would be to first tell yourself, yes, the pandemic is what it is. Yes, these restrictions appear maybe to be necessary. We don't know for sure. We're still in the middle of an experiment in a way, but the way it's looking in America right now is that, yeah, we really have to be careful um, because there's a lot, there's growing numbers of examples of, of where it didn't work out so well. So, so maybe I should accept that. And, realize that radical acceptance, even though in Linehan's book, her skills manual, there are like 10 steps or 10 guidelines you can take for radical acceptance, and they're all very helpful. They kind of break down to two main things. When you radically accept, you're doing one thing to the reality that you're perceiving now, and you're doing the other, you're doing something else to the things you don't want to believe. All right, you are, I mean, the things you're believing instead of what the reality is. You put it that way. Oh, this person is still going to be with me. Oh, they aren't dead yet. Oh, the pandemic isn't real. And these kind of things, these beliefs now need to be subject to somehow letting them go. Easy to say, but somehow, and there's these many guidelines that Linehan puts in there, some of which are directed towards starting to let go of these things that are painful to think. And then there's the reality where the, the goal of that is to embrace it and not just say, well, okay, I guess I can live with this. It's no, it's like, it's like the difference of, uh, take this cup. All right, this is the reality. I guess we have to live with this versus this is the reality. I'm gonna embrace this reality. I'm gonna take it in. 
I'm going to live within this reality. I'm not going to pretend that it's not the reality. I'm not going to forget about it at five o'clock. This is my reality. I'm going to live with this reality. Now, where do I go with that next? And then we go to second base. But it's sort of radical acceptance, which isn't usually a one-step process. It's usually a many-step over time process to where we radically accept. It took me years to radically accept I wouldn't have the athletic ability to be an NBA basketball player. But I fought with that in my head for so long. Other people could have looked along earlier and said, Charlie, there's no way in the world you're going to be an NBA basketball player. You're not even first string on your high school team in, little, in the little town you live in. Are you kidding? Um, and, and, and so I needed over time, but it was through many bumps and scrapes that I then could sort of, I just had to let go. I'm not gonna be an NBA basketball player. My mind wants to it, but it's not going to get it. So now what do I embrace? It's really hard to radically accept letting go of some things unless you can also embrace something else. It, you have nowhere to go. It's just too painful. You, you've, you've already given up your pre-pandemic life. You've given up a lot of things about your pre-pandemic life and you don't know when they're coming back. And that's so painful that it's really hard to let that go and say, I guess it's gone. I guess I won't be doing this for the next year. College students in America, I guess I won't be going back to continue my college degree on campus. Or if I do, it's gonna be a very odd arrangement on campus. And I, don't, I didn't wanna do that. And so you're stuck with the thing that you don't want to accept and you want to hang on to what was there and you have to let go of it. But it's usually through a lot of thought and bumps and scrapes and conversations or just awareness, just awareness. No, it's not a reality. It's not a reality. It's not a reality. And then you need somewhere else to go. If you're just going to, if you're going to let go of this, you have to go somewhere. And so you need to go somewhere and say, you know what, we're going to, we're going to live this. We're going to live through this pandemic in the best way we can figure out. We're gonna take it on. We're gonna take it on as a challenge now. Now it's really hard to get to that. You can't get to that unless you radically accept that it's happened. Because you'd rather just sort of like refuse to accept that it happened or just resign yourself to it, which is not a very good problem solving strategy. If you just resign yourself to something, you're like as if it's running over you. You're not exerting any agency. So if you want to move to the next step effectively, I think it helps to do radical acceptance. The next step, second base. Now you've woken up, you've generated mindful energy, you've directed that energy to the source of your misery, you've started to sort out what is the source of your misery, you've started to tease out the difference between reality as it truly is, as far as you can I keep saying this as far as you can tell, because none of us knows reality as it truly is. That's just a philosophical point, I believe. Um, but we get as close as we can up to the edge of what reality is through our own sensory system and our own thinking. And so you get up to there and then you um, um, sort of see that and then you move to, okay, can I accept this and let go of my illusions? And if you can accept it, embrace it and let go of your illusions, now you're gonna be in pain. So that's why you go to second base. You go to second base to take care of those, that emotional expressiveness, that emotional pain which is gonna come up, the sadness of letting things go, the sadness of somebody not coming back, the sadness of 
uh, an era of your life being gone, the sadness of missing out on something that you really wanted, all these things, the sadness of what you're letting go during this pandemic without knowing when it's going to change. And so all of that is sadness or anger or um, guilt for some people about how they have it better than someone else during the pandemic. Uh, people who are truly suffering because they actually were already at the have not end of the inequality. And now the pandemic has revealed that even further. And let's say you're doing quote, sort of okay, or even okay. So now you might be coping with guilt during this. And so whatever it is, self-validation means that you apply what we teach in DBT about validation to yourself as if you are having a relationship with yourself and yourself is now suffering and yourself is upset and in pain and might be expressing it openly or might be just expressing it when you're taking a shower or when you're taking a walk or when you're just sitting somewhere and thinking, oh my God, how am I going to tolerate this? How am I going to bear with this? And then you sort of step back and with everything you saw at home plate and at first base, you say, but this is how it is. This is how it is. This is part of accepting this is also accepting the emotions that come with it and just experiencing them. They will not kill you, but they will be painful. And so then you, if you can validate, it means you listen. The first level of validation in DBT of six levels is listening to a person, just listening, deep listening to the accurate story as best as you can get it. So you're listening to your own mind. You're, you're, you're just hearing your own mind speak and you're listening to it without intervening, without shutting it down without avoiding it and without acting on it. You're just listening to yourself say, and sort of like sometimes you have to do this because no one else wants to hear you anyway. You know, everybody else is already filled up with their own misery about this. And so where do you go with this? I mean, you could be in a, a, a party where everybody just is miserable. But this, uh, the idea of this is that actually you can talk to yourself. And you can say, oh, my God, this is just horrible. How am I going to get through this? And then you can say, yeah, it really is horrible. And then you can identify the realistic variables that make it terrible and that make it. And then you can say with level two of validation in DBT is to reflect back to yourself. You know what? It is terrible. It is difficult. You haven't been through this before and you don't know when it's going to end. No wonder you're worried. No wonder you're scared and upset. And so then you're listening to yourself at level two of validation. And in DBT, there's a level four of validation, which is that you make sense of what you feel based on your past. So people with PTSD that I'm treating, who've come back into treatment during this pandemic, are finding their PTSD is more activated. Their symptoms are worse. People with depression, major depression, are having a major depression. And people with anxiety disorders seem to be presenting with more anxiety. And people with problems in their homes, such as domestic violence or just complicated family dynamics, it's worse. So all these things are understandable. So you just have to kind of like convey to yourself, no wonder, no wonder I'm upset about this because I'm a human being. And human beings would be upset about this, whichever of these waves we're talking about right now. No wonder you're upset about the decision that was made by the president or by the people in Congress that should be opposing him, but aren't. I mean, no wonder you're upset about inequality, about racism. No wonder you're upset about the pandemic. So it's kind of like validating yourself. Um, 
now that's second base and it just helps you cope with the emotions that arise if you stop avoiding reality. If you accept reality, if you lean into reality, you lean into the emotions that naturally follow reality. So now if you can validate yourself, that's one of many strategies in DBT you can do with your emotions. I'm, like I say, it's only one. And then there's third base. The other step is what can you do about the situation? Now you've really gone over, the more you understand the reality of a situation and what it means to you and what your emotions are about it and why it's hard to accept and you're working on accepting it, it can be very helpful to all of these things if you actually carve out something you can do about it. Because if you don't do that, you can be very effective doing mindfulness and radical acceptance and validation. But if there isn't also an ingredient of, okay, now, what could we do? You know, and, uh, and the way I think about that is that you start with what you would like to accomplish. Like maybe your values are, I, I want to be an activist about this. I want to oppose this. How can I oppose this? So that's step one. Here we're back to math again. This is a five-step thing. So that's step one is really when you identify a goal that's aligned with your values. And you say, you know what? I want I, I, I do see this happening. I do see this time in history. I do see what it's doing to me and other people I know. And I'd like to take a stand about it, do something about it, but I feel so small. And it's such a big problem. And what I would say is, okay, so narrow down a realistic, single step, concrete action you can take in the direction you're talking about. Just narrow it down. I mean, I like goals like that, I think are, it's ideal if they're realistic. They aren't something more than you can do. They're concrete. So they actually mean you do something in action. Um, and uh, they're compelling to you. They fit in with your values. Um, and then the second step of that is to commit yourself to that. So now you decide, you know what? I'm gonna write a letter to the newspaper about what I think, about what's going on in our community about this. Okay, there's an action step. Is it gonna affect the whole world? No, not immediately, but even if it affects one person, or maybe you're just gonna decide, you know what? I've held back saying what I wanna to say to certain friends of mine about this because I'm afraid it's gonna upset them if I say what I think, but I'm gonna I'm going to take this on and, and I'm gonna to talk to my friends so they know what I'm thinking because maybe it's a value what I'm thinking, even if it's different than what they think. And so that's what I mean by an action step. I mean, another action step is to go to a rally or go to a, uh, or, or just have a conversation or like I say, write a letter or, or join a movement or something, do something, you know, I, one of my best um, friends in the world who's from Sweden is on this, pod, the Zoomcast right now, and from Stockholm, we all know what uh, Greta Thunberg did, uh, as one person who decided her values were very upset about climate change and the way people were behaving about that, and it didn't matter who they were, and she just had unbelievable courage, and showed what one person can do, and she's still being a, a, a change maker, even today, even when she isn't somewhere. Her name is everywhere. It's in this podcast already. I mean, and it's uh, so that 
yeah, maybe you'll do a big thing, but it doesn't have to be a big thing. It's like maybe you'll just take a day off and figure out what to do about the pandemic to try to make lives better for you and your family. Who knows what you come up with? So there's action step. There's figuring out something to try, making a commitment to that, and then planning for perseverance. Because a lot of people are really good at those first steps, but then they stop. <laughs> and it's completely understandable. But you almost have to plan for the fact, troubleshoot for the fact that you're probably going to do a little bit and then stop. Um, and so you want to think, wait a minute, what can I persevere with? And how am I going to reinforce myself for persevering? And you start to have to become a behaviorist who starts to realize that you're just an organism trying to get yourself to change, to address these things that came up in the three, three bases we already covered. And now I want to do something about it, but I know I'm just going to start and then stop. So how do I reinforce myself for persevering? So step one, a goal that then boils down to a realistic action step. Second, uh, commit somehow jacking up your commitment deciding I'm really going to do this and there are strategies of course in DVT for commitment third um, getting yourself to have a plan to persevere I'm going to do this every week on such and such a day or I'm going to revisit it uh, every day at five o'clock or whatever it is um, or I'm going to involve another person and if two people I'm more likely to persevere and then the fourth step is to do it intelligently because whatever you do, you're going to run into resistance. Your own resistance, other people's resistance, there's going to be obstacles or you would have done it already. And so assume there's obstacles, imagine what those obstacles are, think about those obstacles and start to solve them even as you get started. Um, whatever, and depending what the nature of it is, it's be different kind of things. And the last step is not actually a step. It is that you need to have the strategic ability to do what you're thinking of doing. Like if I was Greta Thunberg, I couldn't have made it because I, I, would, I would get so seasick coming across the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean to America, that I wouldn't have made it. You know? So I would have to plan for some different step. You have to be realistic and think and, and know that your obstacles are that some people are seasick, so they shouldn't go do a demonstration in the sea unless they're trying to demonstrate seasickness, which isn't very fun to watch. <laughs> and then there's um, having strategies and resources. So you don't want to plan on doing something that you can't access, that you can't do. So pick something, whatever you're thinking of, go down about 10 to 10% 10 of that. You're more likely to do it. You're more likely to take a step. And even taking that step, even if you aren't changing the world, changes you, which then changes the world. It changes the people around you when they see, oh, Charlie had that conversation with his brother that he's put off for years about such and such, wow, maybe I should do that with my brother. Uh, or I wonder how it went, you know? Like you can't share these things without affecting another person. So even tiny action steps actually start to ripple around uh, more than you think. So anyway, I, I've covered what I was able to cover uh, with the kind of day I had and with thinking about these things. The, this is from my point of view, if you, if you study DBT skills, you see every one of the things I was talking about, but they're located all in different places in the skills book. So you see mindfulness over here, and then you see validation over here, and then you see radical acceptance in another module again, and then you have problem solving that's sort of woven throughout the modules. And so actually, I'm just trying, taking stuff and saying, here's a sensible way to think. Get mindful, appreciate reality, 
accept reality, radically accept reality, tolerate your emotions when you do that because it's going to be painful, validate yourself, and then start to think about what am I going to do about this? And I just sort of think there's a four-step uh, cycle of, the, of, of being effective in the pandemic, whatever it is. You know, if it means you just end up doing a picnic, picnic this weekend, that's a good outcome. So everybody who's listening or on now or listens later, um, uh, I hope this was useful to you, you know, and I'll, I, I'm always, uh, I'm always open to feedback and I always learn from it. Uh, I always appreciate it. Even if I don't immediately get back to you, if you write me an email through my website or something else, uh, know that I get it and uh, think about it. So, okay, everybody. Have a good uh, evening or whatever part of the day it is in your part of the world. <laughs> All right. Bye. Adios. Sayonara. Hey, though.